Hey there, Lions. Did you know that you can get access to exclusive bonus audio content by joining our paid support group, the Lions of Liberty Pride? For as little as $5 a month, you can help us grow this program to new heights. Learn more by heading over to lionsofliberty.com support. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Felony Friday, of course, is the show where each and every Friday I focus on exposing injustice in the broken criminal justice system. This show is one of three that we have here on the Lions of Liberty podcast feed. Every Monday, we have our flagship program hosted by Mark Clare, where he hosts roundtable discussions. He interviews leading minds in the Liberty movement. Wednesday, we have Electric Liberty Land hosted by Brian McWilliams, your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty. And of course, you don't want to miss any of these shows, so the easiest way to ensure that you don't is by subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever in the heck you get your podcast these days. I use iTunes personally. I think most people do. I could be wrong. iTunes does hold the most weight. So if you want to do us a real big favor and you haven't yet, you can go to iTunes, leave us a five-star rating, a little review to help us out with the old iTunes ranking there. Today's episode of Felony Friday, if you missed last week's episode then you're going to want to go back and listen to it because this is part two of that interview, of my interview with Jamel Nettles. And Jamel's story is incredible. If you missed part one, you got to go back right now, pause this, go back. You can find part one at lionsofliberty.com slash FF87. Or if you are subscribed on iTunes or Stitcher, just go back to last week's episode, episode 87. Check it out. He's an incredible storyteller. In this episode, today's episode, is the 88th episode of Felony Friday. So that means you'll be able to find the show notes with links and notes to everything I'm going to talk about today at lionsofliberty.com slash FF88. And part two, so I guess to review part one first, during part one, Jamal talked about the circumstances of where he grew up in a very poor, impoverished area and how they led him and sort of almost forced him down a path or pushed him down a path into drug dealing. And he grew up in a culture where he was surrounded by drugs. That's all he saw growing up. People would ask him to, to take money somewhere, to take, to take a package somewhere, and to see people getting arrested. It was, it was all around him. He compared it to you know people grow up in a, a sports culture or a music culture. Jamel grew up in a drug culture. As he got older and he started to participate in it and to sell drugs, he found that he gained some respect. His family, his mother especially, really respected him. He was able to help her out with a, a payment on an apartment. That really, that really encouraged him to sell more drugs. And he found he was wildly successful. He told one part of the story during part one where he was in high school, 16-year-old kid in high school, and he had over $350,000 in cash. So found wild success. Now, where we find the story in part two gets just completely crazy and very, very tragic. Jamel's going to start, and I'll go back and I'll replay a little bit, a couple seconds of part one to find a good point. 
and he's going to talk about the break-in into his house and what happened there. I don't want to give too much away or tell too much about it, but it is just a, a shocking and really a, a tragic story. So, guys, here is the rest of Jamel Nettle's story. What ended up happening? Can you tell us a little bit about the break-in that occurred and how that ultimately led to you being arrested? Yes, sir. That's, that's what I was about to go into. So this, just trying to explain how I thought, you know, I was doing the right thing, you know. And um, But at this time, though I had this money, and on November 21st, 2005, which I was 18 years old at the time, um, a home invasion occurred at my home. Now, I had moved my family away from uh, Maysville, where I, where I live. My mother had moved. I had moved my mother away, and I had moved my uh, family, my son and family away to another neighborhood. And I didn't sell drugs out of my house. And I didn't, um, you know, people didn't, like a lot of people didn't know where I lived, but I had put a lot of money into like uh, a couple of flashy cars and stuff with TVs and music and paint rims and stuff. So um, if you looked hard enough, it wouldn't be that hard to find me because of the cars stick out so much. But anyways, um, one night we're, me and my 15 year old cousin are sitting in there playing a video game. My girlfriend is in the kitchen cooking and my little two-year-old son is just running around and uh we heard a loud noise at the door now this is christmas time this is around christmas time it's december the 21st and i just moved into a new house so my family members are popping up all the time wanting to see the new house and um you know come spend time with us we have family coming in from out of town because it's the holiday season so we heard a, we hear a loud noise in the front room boom now i had a really really big mirror I used to always be worried about falling. So the first thing came to my mind was my big mirror had failed. Let me run in here and make sure my baby didn't get hit or my baby didn't get cut by any of the glass. So when I run in there, the mirror's on the wall, and my girlfriend looked at me. I'm like, what is that? I thought it's somebody at the door. Now, I got a couple of uncles and little cousins. They like to play and knock all hard on the door like it's the police, playing stupid little games. So uh, I go to the door. I say, who is it? And somebody say, it's your Uncle Junior. Now, I'm expecting, uh, you know, family because people are popping up, not necessarily this uncle. But uh, so I get ready to open the door. And then I see men with masks on behind the door. So I immediately try to push, push the uh, force the door shut. And they kick the door and, and shove their shoulders into the door. And uh, three masked men run into my home and begin, begin shooting. They don't, they don't speak first. They begin shooting first. He immediately tries to shoot me in the, in the heart, but he didn't hit me in the heart because we were tussling. He hit me in the arm. And, uh, so make a long story short, I'm tussling with the first guy and I, I, I rush him with the gun and scream to my girlfriend to run my girlfriend and my little cousin to run, run out the, the side door. And, uh, which was by the kitchen where she was. So as I'm tussling with him, a second gunman <clears throat> rushes in behind him. So I take the first gunman and drive him into the second one. So now all three of us are tussling, and, and they're, they're constantly shooting. The guns are going off. And uh, my son's mother runs out the side door. But as she's running out the side door, and we t I'm tussling with the other two guys, I can see two more guys outside. One is standing there with an assault rifle, looking like he's trying to catch anybody who comes out of the house. 
And the third guy rushes in the house and runs past me and the other two guys who are tussling. And as, as all this is going on, now remind you, this is happening very fast. My little cousin comes from the back room. And as, as he turns the corner, he runs into, he doesn't physically run into him, but they, they, they run into each other's path of the third gunman that was rushing into the house. And when the third gunman saw my little cousin, even though, he, even though the gunman was wearing a mask, he immediately shot my little cousin in the chest and my little cousin hit the floor. You know, he shot him in the chest with a 357 and he was uh, 15 years old, you know, and uh, I didn't know at the time, you know, I, I, I couldn't really tell as everything that was going on because everything is happening so fast. So the third gunman runs and jumps over my little cousin's body in the doorway and runs into the back room. Now I'm in here touching with these other gunmen and one breaks free and he turns the gun towards my two-year-old. You know, and then I, I knocked my two-year-old down and he rolled under the table and the guy just is shooting at my baby, you know. So all, then we get to touch in here again. They're constantly shooting the gun. Sometimes they're hitting me, some, most times they're missing. But adrenaline is keeping me going. But then I took a shot in the, uh, uh, to my femur bone, which is the, the thigh bone, and it turned my damn leg into a spaghetti noodle. And I knocked to the floor. And after that, they pistol whipped me. And uh, I had a lot of dreads. I had dreadlocks and, uh, they holding the gun to my head, asking me now, now they're finally starting to ask me, you know, well, where's this and that at? Give me the money, this and that. So I offered them to kidnap me and just to get them away from my family. Hey man, I don't have, uh, nothing here like that, this and that. So I tell them about a little money that I have. And, uh, and he hollered to the other room to tell the other guy what I said. And one started hitting me with a gun saying that I'm lying. And I hear somebody hollering in the back, no, he ain't lying, he ain't lying, I got it. Boom. So when he said he got it, the guy takes the gun and put it to the back of my head, pulls the trigger. So uh, I feel something hit my head, you know, when I hear the gun go off. But uh, I thought the guy had killed me. I thought he had shot me in the back of the head and killed me. And he thought he did too. But I had so much hair, my dreads were so big that I don't know if the, the gun kicking up made him miss or what, but the bullet didn't go into my skull. It just knocked a, uh, a, a groove into my skull. It just didn't, No, it knocked a little patch out my head, but it didn't actually enter. It didn't enter my brain. You know what I'm saying? It knocked, it knocked my hair out and knocked like a little ditch in the back of my head, you know? And, uh, and I, I, and, and I was bleeding bad though. And, uh, and I fell to the floor. I thought I was dead, but once I realized in, that I was still thinking, I just laid there and did it. You know what I'm saying? So as I'm, I'm laying there, I kept my eyes closed. I, I thought I was dead, but then when I realized I wasn't, I just laid there and kept my eyes closed like I was dead. And they thought I was dead too. So I hear them run past, and I'm thinking that they're gone. Well, um, I open my eyes a little too soon and I see the third gunman coming out of the back room you know and uh, he see me he didn't took his mask off because I guess he couldn't he didn't you know he's in, in an unfamiliar house and it's nighttime so I guess he couldn't see with the mask on or because he thought they hadn't killed me or a combination of the both but we he freezes in his track and we looking up at each other and I'm telling him hey man just go ahead I don't care nothing about you I didn't see you just go ahead just go ahead but I know this person and he knows that I know him. And my theory is the reason they came in 
shooting from the beginning, they were going to kill everybody in the house. You know, that was the plan. And because they were afraid of the retaliation that would come behind bothering me because there were so many people depending on me at the time. And it was just a, a lot. So when he, when he saw me and I saw him, he came and stood over me and, and began to shoot some more, you know? And, uh, again, I thought I was dead and I laid there and played dead and kept my eyes closed. And I guess when he thought I was dead, he ran off, you know, but, um, so when I, again, I realized I'm not dead. How much pain were you in at that point in time? I mean, you had to be. No, I wasn't in much pain. The the adrenaline, the adrenaline and the fear was kind of like pain blockers. I wasn't in much pain. I I really wasn't. I was so, I was, you know, I'm not going to play tough guy. I was afraid, you know, I'm, I'm caught all the way off guard here. And, uh, the adrenaline and the fear were like pain blockers. I wasn't in much pain. And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't walk. I tried to get up and I collapsed. So I had to pull myself with my my arm that was still good with my right arm, pull myself to the kitchen and snatch the phone off the wall. And I immediately called my family and tried to tell them what's going on. And I called the ambulance. I called 911, tried to tell them what was going on. And uh, so I had to call my baby over to My baby wasn't even crying. He was He was in shock. He was like, he was like froze, you know, and uh, I called him over to me. He finally came from under the table and I held him and kissed him and he's trying to talk to me and stuff. And I'm telling him everything going to be all right. They just playing with that and blah, blah, blah. So I'm, I'm screaming out to my little cousin, calling his name, calling my girlfriend's name, which I know she was gone. And I'm hoping that they didn't catch her and kill her in the front yard on, on the side of the house. And uh, I'm calling my little cousin and he won't respond. So I'm, I'm constantly calling the ambulance. Now, um, so make a long story short, the police get there and rush me to the hospital. And I find out later while I'm in the hospital that my uh, little cousin, that he didn't make it, he died. He got shot once in the chest with a 357 and he was dead before he hit the floor, they say. But I didn't want to believe that. So I, you know, you know, but, uh, so that was real hard on me and my whole family and stuff. And. I ended up getting shot five times and, uh, you know, my girlfriend got away. They didn't see her. She got away and my son was okay, uh, physically. And, um, so we went through that whole ordeal. I had surgery and, uh, after that, the detectives came to talk to me and I didn't, I didn't talk to them about much of anything. Now it's, other stuff that I, I still don't know at this time. Only thing on my mind is the only thing I care about is like, I don't want to talk to the police. I don't care about the actual robbery. The only thing on my mind is retaliation. This has to be, I have to get this straight, you know? And, uh, so I wound up leaving the hospital early on my own. I kind of just left after I had my surgery and stuff. Cause it was now it was December the 24th. I had been in the hospital and I uh, I wanted to be home because I, I almost died. I wanted to be home with my son for Christmas. You, you were shot and four so, or five times and you were only in the hospital for three days? Yeah. Wow. Yep, I left. And I uh, uh, I left. We kind of like, I kind of got to put me in my chair and just, just let's leave, you know, because I want to go home and be with my family. 
uh, be with my son for Christmas and stuff, you know, trying to get him back to some sense of normalcy. So I went to my mother's house and make a long story short, man, it's Christmas day. And man, the news had reported two, two teenagers killed, you know, a double homicide. And when word got around that I actually wasn't dead, I have reason to believe that a relative of mine was involved, a relative of mine's boyfriend was involved in what had happened. But they came over there at my mom's house. Many people didn't know where my mother lived. She lived in a subdivision. You had to go through like a maze to get to it. And after he left, about 15 minutes later, man, some guys pulled up in a, in a car with hoodies and masks on and, and uh, on Christmas Day. And they were getting out of the car to come in and, and, and kill me, to come into my house again, you know. And uh, But my uncles and stuff were there and everybody. So they come out the house, you know, every, people got guns and all kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm there. I got an assault rifle. And, you know, just before everybody begins to open fire, the guys skid off in the car and they take off. My uncles and cousins and stuff jump in the car and they chasing them through the subdivision didn't catch him, you know? So it was just like a real intense moment going on in my life at the time. And, and man, I, uh, I had already, I was already smoking marijuana. I started smoking marijuana when I was like 10 before I even started selling drugs. But at this time now, uh, they had me on muscle relaxers and lower tabs. And I had already started taking Xanax bars and drinking, uh, promethazine coating syrup. And it did Man, I'm, I'm in such so much emotional and mental pain that I had become a drug addict and didn't even know it. Like, I don't want to be in reality. So I'm always in and out of reality. Like, as soon as I wake up, I feel it coming down. I'm smoking marijuana, drinking syrup, which is promethazine, codeine, taking Xanax bars and lower tabs and all kind of other prescription pills, downers. Just knocking myself out. You know, if I'm not riding around trying to retaliate or I'm not, you know, trying to uh, get my money back together. This is what I'm doing. Well, now, <clears throat> I had went into a deep, deep depression. You know, I'm crying all the time. I'm, I'm cursing out my loved ones. It's, it's, I'm, in a, I'm in a bad place. You know, I'm always worried about somebody trying to kill me. And to be honest, I want to kill other people, you know. And uh, I didn't know... And I, and I wasn't cooperating with the homicide detectives about who had killed my little cousin. Well, I didn't know that when the guys came into the house, they threw down small, uh, small quantities of drugs. And, and, um, to, because people in the street know that if uh, a shooting is gang-related or drug-related, the police don't investigate it as strong as if it's just you did a home invasion on some normal regular old people, you know, it's drug related, or gang related. They're not going to investigate it and go as hard about it. So oftentimes people do that. I'm not, I don't know if you're familiar with Ray for Edmund, uh, the Ray for Edmund story. Um, no, no, big, no. Big, big drug kingpin guy, but he's the one that, that I, that I first know of who started that in DC. That's what they would do when they would kill somebody, they would throw drugs on them because they knew, or they would throw a, a gang flag on them or something. Uh, a bandana, you know, some kind of gang markings because he knew that uh, they don't they didn't care about that that much, you know. That's how you get away with it. But people do that in the street. But they threw little small quantities of drugs down. Now, I had, um, um, I knew I had some cash, but I thought the, the cops had took the cash. And 
and stuff like that. And I actually had two ounces of cocaine that I was supposed to give to someone, but I had got sick the day of the shooting before. And the person didn't come get them, and I didn't take them back around the corner where they were supposed to go. So I knew that I had that, but I didn't care about that because I was trying to get the ambulance there to save my little cousin's life. Save both of my life, but more so my little cousin's life. But I didn't care about that. Like, that, that was nothing. So I knew the police may say something to me later, but I didn't know these guys had threw down some crack cocaine. Now, if you, if, I don't know if you're familiar, but the, the penalties for crack cocaine are way more stiff than they are for powder cocaine. Right. Mandatory so, minimums, yeah. Right. And it was, at this time, it's a 100 to 1 ratio. Now it's 18 to 1. So basically, you can get caught with 100 grams of cocaine, but get caught with one gram of crack cocaine, it's, you get the same amount of time. Um, so make it long so short. So now the detective, the homicide detective was so upset with me. Now the, uh, I'm sitting at my, uh, grandparents house one day and I see the police raid a dead end street and I don't know who they're coming to get. Well, come to find out they're coming to get me. So they crashed the house, throw everybody on the ground and offer me an opportunity to cooperate. I declined the opportunity to cooperate and they take me to jail. They, they're basically begging me to tell on some people and, and even lie on some people, to be honest, who, um, which that's a long story to how, how that went and why they wanted these people so bad. And, um, and when I refused to, the guy told me, man, you know, you, you make, you gonna make, you gonna try to make me like a fool. I'm gonna get you a life sentence. And I told him, man, it's no, this is the, um, the agent. I told him, there's no way you can get me a life sentence. Man. I've never been in trouble. He said, man, you don't know the law. He said, he said, I'm telling you, I already told these people you're going to cooperate before I came to get you. Now, he never talked to me. He just assumed because so many people cooperate with the government. And, uh, and when I refused to, man, make a long story short, I go to court. Now, I find out these people that threw this stuff down. I'm trying to explain to them. They don't care. They, want me, they don't care about what happened, none of that. They want me to cooperate against these people that they got lined up. You know, they want these people bad. You know, and they feel like I'm the one that can put all the pieces of the puzzle together because they didn't know anything about me as far as uh, whatever I had going on in the street. They didn't know. They knew about these other people and they knew that I had a link to these other people because through uh, uh, family relationships and fr and childhood friendships. And uh, so, man, I go to court and uh, they don't want to let me plead guilty without cooperating. And then they finally give me a, a plea deal when I refuse to cooperate. And it's like 14 years. And that to me, it, you know, and I'm still a teenager. To me, that was like a life sentence. I just couldn't, I couldn't deal with that. I told him, hey, man, I could take the lick on the cocaine. And they, they had found uh, $20,000. The guys who did the robbery didn't get all of the money. They got, their eyes lit up with a, with a little bit of money that they saw. Because I had some money there because I was going to uh, put down another house trying to get me a rental property and, and buy a Dodge Charger that had just came out back then. And uh, so I had some money with me. Like I said, I was sick that day and I didn't take it back to my aunt's house where it was supposed to be. But mm -hmm. uh, so the police had got the $20,000. And when I go to court, man, they were so upset with me that uh, when it's sentencing, they wind up uh, turning my $20,000 into crack cocaine. You know, they wind up turning it into crack cocaine. And what do you mean? I what do you mean up, turning it into? Because they were saying that though, though the jury said that they couldn't do it because they couldn't prove that it came from drug proceeds, 
they said that, okay, well, $20,000 was the equivalent of $20,000. And they charged, and they made that into grams of crack cocaine. Like how much would this, how much would this yeah, buy? So they, they, they just assumed that you were going to use that money to buy crack cocaine and sell it. Right. Right. And then they, they wound up giving me 30 years, five months, but that wasn't good enough for the prosecutor. The prosecutor wanted me to get the life sentence like the agent said he's going to try to get. So he should file for upward, depart, upward departure which for a wrongful death enhancement, which will automatically put me in because I was already at a level uh, 40. It would put me in a level 44, which is a mandatory life sentence for a wrongful death enhancement, saying that I was responsible for my little cousin dying. And um, that would have given me a mandatory life sentence. So we argued that back and forth in court, and they, the judge wound up dismissing that, and just um, and just and I left with the thirty years and five months. And she talked to me like she had done me a favor by not giving me the life sentence, like she had gave me thirty months, you know, instead of three hundred and sixty-five months, you know, and uh. And as a teenager, man, I was off to prison in a, in a USP. I get there behind a, you know, a 30-foot a, a concrete wall around people with life sentences and people who've been in prison for 20 years, and I'm a teenager. You know, and these people are here stabbing each other, you know, all kind of homosexual activity going on. People are extorting one another. There uh, is a real, real savage environment. Like the USP is... Uh, in, in federal prison, you have different levels. The lowest one is the camp. Then you have the low. Then you have the medium. Then you have the high, which is called the USP, United States Penitentiary. But I'm in the USP as a teenager, you know, because I had I was so young. I had so much time. And it was just a real culture shock. I had never been in trouble before. I had never been on probation. I had never been uh, to the youth center. Nothing. I had never done no jail time. The only uh, running I had was a uh, simple possession of marijuana, which... I went downtown for an hour, maybe, and uh, burned it right out and just had to pay a $600 fine for some possession of marijuana or smoking marijuana. But I had never been incarcerated. And I immediately go to a federal prison with all this time, you know, in one of the worst federal prisons in the country, you know, the, as, as far as the level of federal prison. And it was just an extreme culture shock. And uh, make a long story short, man, I... What got you through that point in time? What did you lean on for support? When you were in prison, man, my family left. Friends, when when the money was gone, the family was gone, the friends were gone, everything. I was just on my own. You know, I went through a phase where I got real religious. You know, looking for some support through that. Then I realized through some research and and what I feel to be logic, what I feel to be logic, that that wasn't the route for me. You know, so I I, I wound up meeting some guys. Different people were trying to kind of take me under their wing. They kind of saw me as a son because I was, I was the youngest person on the compound. As a fa- and matter of fact, the prison was so bad and I was so young that the captain on the compound would not let me on the compound. He's going to keep me in isolation, not by myself. I'd had a cellmate in, in what you call the hole, a solitary confinement for a couple of years until I had, you know, uh, a few birthdays, this man said. Before Jeez. I let him on the compound because he felt like I couldn't handle what was going on out there, you know, uh, because I had never been incarcerated before. And it was, this was like, there was no transition. You going from one extreme to the next, you know, and uh, he, he, he tried to give me a knife. He told me I couldn't go in this compound if I don't take, if I don't take this shank. 
You know, I thought he was joking. He was dead ass real. He was showing me, he lifted his shirt up and showed me, he said, man, these people stabbed me up around here. What you think they're going to do to you, man? What do you think you're going to happen if you get into it, you know? You, you don't, you don't, you're not ready for this, you know? But anyways, I, he kept me in the hole for like three weeks. And I kept going under Captain's review. And I kept trying to convince him, man, hey, let me go on the compound. You know, I don't want to just stay back here like this. And so I wound up going on the compound and I had a little reputation from the street. And I wasn't that far from my city. And uh, I, was, I was far, but not outside of the southeastern region. So there were people from my city who were there who knew my family. Like I said, I have a big family. And so I didn't have, like, many issues. People embraced me, and I had some respect from different things that went on on the street. And uh, some older guys kind of took me under their wing and would explain stuff to me. I'm bitter at the time, so I, I got in a little trouble. I didn't get wrote up for the trouble. But... uh. So I don't have, I never had any disciplinary reports, but I got into a little trouble here and there because I was so angry and young. And uh, again, trying to find my way again in life like I was when I was a kid. And uh, guys kind of gave me the ropes about things and explained stuff to me. And what I wound up finding, seeking refuge in was reading. Not like novels and stuff, but like studying like history and um, fitness and business and you know, uh, politics and and stuff like that. I began to study up on different religions and not from a religious standpoint, but the impact that they have on, on humanity, on, on history and stuff like that. And uh, I got really into that and studying business, like I say, and other stuff like that. And, and I got into studying self-help books. The book that I would say absolutely changed my life, I, I would say one would be Unlimited Power by... Tony Robbins, his name is Anthony Robbins. They call him Tony Robbins. I don't know if you ever Tony heard Robbins, motivation. Yeah, right. Heard of Unlimited Power. That. And uh, But the number one book that I would have to say changed my life would be um, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Talking about controlling your thoughts and thought impulses. I just, and, I haven't read it yet. I just bought that book. So what's the, yeah. uh, what's the most powerful part of that book or to you? What, what made the biggest impact? Uh, the teachings on what he calls auto suggestion, basically training your way to, to training yourself to think in a way that you begin to have automatic thought impulses that are in line with the way that you're trying to train yourself to think, which basically his thing is immersion. It's, it's having what he calls a uh, burning desire, which is basically obsession. So you look at a person like Michael Jordan or Michael Jackson or uh, even though this guy is controversial, uh, a guy like Donald Trump, who is mm-hmm. great in his, who is great in his own right, um, these people immerse themselves in what they, uh, what they're the most passionate about, whether it be business, whether it be sports, whether it be entertainment. Like I said, they immerse themselves. This is what they eat, sleep, drink. This is what they do. You know, this is who they are until it becomes a part of your being. A guy named Robert Greene also has a book called Mastery. The guy who wrote The 48 Laws of Power and Artist of Seduction, he has a book called Mastery, which is on the same subject. Which basic, But once you immerse yourself into something that you have a, a burning desire about, a burning obsession about, you become that thing, and you become so great at it that your mind begins to feed you um, thought impulses from the universe or from God or whatever you want to call it. This is how you tap into your greatness. And this is how you manifest whatever you want to uh, bring from your mind into reality. You know, so his thing is about mental discipline. 
So it was just absolutely great for me. So I began to try mm-hmm. to change my environment, the people I hung with, and try to line up my all three, you know, my thoughts, words, and behaviors with whatever I wanted to uh, manifest in my life. And I began to have some discipline and I studied a lot with the uh, Nation of Islam, studying uh, Minister Farrakhan's study guides and stuff like that, which are on the same topic of mental discipline, how to discipline the mind, how to discipline the body with as far as eating and fitness and you know, you know your, your, your thoughts and behaviors and stuff like that. And, and just once I got that down, my life began to change. And, uh, you know, and I would file for stuff and get denied and, then when President Obama changed a few laws, I had got some sentence reductions from the changing the crack, the powder cocaine, the crack cocaine ratio, the uh, dropping the two levels on the drug sentences and stuff like that. And I filed for a clemency. Uh, and it took them 34 months to respond. So in the meantime, me filing for clemency and them not responding, I got very discouraged. I get, I would get low. I got depressed thinking they were never going to answer it. And then that's how I came in contact with the brother, uh, Malik King with the, uh, the Epic family and the can do foundation with a lady named Amy. I can't, I can't remember Amy's last Amy, name. Uh, she's been on this show before Amy Pova. Yeah. Right. And she has the can do foundation where I think people should look up can do and the Epic. Epic stands for, um, eliminating prison industrial complex. And can do stands for clemency for all, I think, uh, nonviolent drug offenders. I uh, think that's right. So, yeah. Yeah. So it, both of them are great foundations, man. They, and they both helped me a whole lot because they gave me and a lot of people in federal prison, I mean, a lot, the whole compound and the other compound, information on how to file for clemency. Um, if they say this in their response, you say this. And you have, this, this is the deadline. This is the mailing address. These are the people you contact. These are ideas to help um, get supporters. Um, here are template letters. You just fill in your information and put your own personal story in. It, it was like what they were doing was they were giving invaluable information. It was, you know, made a huge difference. So it gave people hope, So including myself. And uh, when I was all down and just waiting and waiting, I began to be active more active in my uh, pursuit of clemency, contacting a lot of people, trying to get, sending out chain letters, trying to get people to email them to the White House and to the pardon attorney's office or mail them by regular mail. And uh, man, I'm not, you you, you know, you'll never know exactly what worked, what was the straw that broke the camel's back. But uh, we kept fighting and kept pushing. And like I say, with their help, because my family wasn't, wasn't really helping me that much. You know, and I and I didn't know what to tell them to do to help me. But at the same time, you know, like I told you, I'm from poverty. We back, you know, it's back into the daily grind. So they don't, they mind not really on me for real. You know, I have been, you know, I've done 11 years and some change. You know, I've been, I've been gone and I got all this time. Like I ain't never getting out. You know, I'm pretty much dead. And uh, one day, man, I was at work and they just called me down there. And the man said, man, I want to, uh, Say congratulations, the President of the United States has just granted you clemency. And for a second, I kind of, I had been so used to hearing no and negative news, and I had prepared myself because they call you to the same office no matter you get it or you don't got it. You know what I'm saying? It's Mm -hmm. pretty much the same way. You don't know until they tell you. 
So I had already prepared myself for a no, because a lot of no's had started to come at this time. And the presidency was winding down. It was getting close. You know, this was, I got it on uh, December 19th. Ironically enough, it's my son's birthday. Uh, and he called me up there and told me congratulations. So it took a second to sink in because I had prepared myself for a no. So when it wasn't a no, and it was like, I'm actually going to get out of this place and not be old. I'm not going to die in here. I'm not going to get some more time for killing one of these people or one of these people killing me and I die in here, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And, man, and I hadn't cried, and I had been locked up 11 years. I hadn't cried in 10 years, man, and I cried, man. I hadn't cried in 10 years, man. I cried. I couldn't believe it. And, uh, you know, I got December the 19th. I left prison. Uh, January 17th, went to the halfway house, and I left the halfway house April the 18th. And um, I'm in a relationship with a young lady. We're about to get married, and she's pregnant now. We're getting married soon. Congratulations. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Uh, Both of us are gainfully employed. I have my son back. I have custody of my son. We have a, not the the best house, like our last house, but we have a a nice brick home. And... um, you know, things are things are going well. It, it's not. It's 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 a struggle sometimes because when I had been gone so long, a lot of things had changed. The cost of living has gone up significantly since I left the street, and um, technology is a lot different. I've had challenges with navigating some of the technology. Like we were supposed to do this where you could see me over the Skype, and I just couldn't get it going. Um, I've had struggles with trying to shake my own reputation and, um, you know, convince people that I'm not a certain person. And I've had trouble with my family members asking me for money like old times, but I don't have the money anymore. And then there's an attitude about it. Like it's as ridiculous as that sounds. I don't, I don't know. Hmm. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't it, that's, that's another story. I, but I've had yeah. issues with, uh, old, grudges that I've had with other people kind of resurfacing. I've had issues with my younger cousins who are grown now getting into street beasts, street wars, and me getting drugged into them because I'm still living in the same area, but I live on the a quieter side of the same area of where I'm from, which is not that far, you know. You know, you still mm-hmm. bump into people at gas stations and convenience stores and other people's houses and at the stop the red light and the stop sign, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, a thing that I have been struggling with that's very unfortunate. And I, and I plan, we plan on getting out of mobile going to another city soon. Um, is that I have the perception of being a drug dealer and having money and kind of, and being kind of smart, you know, so I, I'm always concerned about, you know, and I've been to a home invasion. That wasn't the first time I was robbed. That was actually the second time I had been robbed. I was set up by somebody called me and actually robbed me the first time. I was like 15 years old. But uh, I have always have concerns pulling up at my house at night, you know, thinking that maybe somebody's behind my house or, you know, like now my house has burglar balls all the way around every window, every door. Um, we have lights cameras, you know what I'm saying? Like I'm always yeah. on conscious about my uh, security and the security of my family. But 
Like the truth of the matter is, man, perception is reality a lot of times, you know, for people. And if, if you think that I still have some money hid somewhere, or if you think that I still have some drug activity going on, but it's just real quiet, you th- if you think I have some cash, then you'll come and try to, you know, come in my home or catch me pulling in my driveway or catch me leaving work and try to kidnap me or something. And then once you really, I'm really telling you there is no money, you don't want to hear that. You know what I'm saying? Somebody would kill me for that because they think I'm lying. You know what I'm saying? There is no money. You know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, uh, that's scary. And that's, uh, I mean, that's something that if, if you stay in that area that, that will hold you back, even, you know, trying to, if you, if you eventually end up trying something entrepreneurial, that's, you know, legitimate exactly. and legal. Exactly. Um, so exactly. yeah, it's, that's, that's a tough situation. That's exactly right, man. I could start my own business and buy me a nice car and let them tell it, oh, he's just trying to be low key. He got this net, you know, so I'm always concerned about that. And then, it, and then it's simple. And then I, I, I've never, I've never lived since the time I got in the street without a gun. You know, I'm a convicted felon now, so I can't have a gun. I can't even have it around me. So just living and it's, it's just, and just to be real, you know, we're not going into uh, like racial politics and all that, but just to be real, man, uh, black people have been trained since the foundation of America through slavery to hate one another, to betray one another, to be envious of one another. And because we still have so much from slave culture within our culture as, as black people in America, black young black males absolutely hate one another. And they, and they fucking hunt one another down, you know. They hunt one another down actively, you know. And because of the hatred and the animosity that's there, a simple, I'm coming out of the convenience store, you're coming in, a shoulder bump could turn into a homicide. A uh, standing in a line somewhere and a step on the back of the shoe could turn into a homicide. A... Uh, at the, at the stop sign and you staring at me too hard could turn into a homicide, man. Or could turn into a fist fight that leads into back and forth shooting at one another. And now I got somebody actively trying to lay in some bushes somewhere and ambush me. And I have no firearm. I have no protection. Or, you know, one of my cousins, or uncles, or even the females, because the, the girls in my family fighting and shooting and stuff, you know, and selling drugs. You know, they could get into something and they don't know where they at, but they know where I am because I, I go to work every day and come, I got the, pretty much the same routine. And you want to come shoot at me and I have no way to defend myself. You know, yeah. I, I I have a hard time with that, you know. So the thing is, we're going to save enough of our money, man. We just gone to another city where no one knows me. I have no reputation and I can actually yeah, We talk, we talk about that exact thing a lot on this show about how they take away felons' rights, obviously right to vote, your Second Amendment rights. And I mean, if you're gonna release someone back into society and and say they're free, but you can't defend your own life or your family's life, that, that's ridiculous. I mean, that's that's insanity. Right. So that's right. I mean, I don't know if that'll ever change. Maybe someday it will, but it's something that, that needs to change for to start to correct the injustice in that system, in this system, because that's just terrible. Right. Right. I mean, just like just just to give you a small example, you know. Uh, when one of my first cousins just set my other first cousin up to get robbed, you know, uh, another one of my first cousins just shot a guy twice in the head right around the corner, you know, and like, this is like, I have to see these people who, who are the brothers of these people who are the friends of these people, 
You see what I'm saying? And so there's mm-hmm. animosity. I've done nothing to these people, but there's animosity because that these are your relatives. You see what I'm saying? And at any time, anything can happen. I have no way to, to defend myself. You know, the best thing I can do is, like I say, put burglar bars around my house, lights, cameras, uh, get my gate fixed, what I plan to do, and get me a big dog so I know nobody's in my yard when I pull up, you know, and mm-hmm. and, and then save my money and, and get on, you know. Yeah, well, um, Jamel, I really want to thank you for for coming on the show. I mean, your story is incredible, and you did a a phenomenal job telling it. Um, You're obviously a really smart guy. You're an entrepreneurial guy, talented guy. And I think, uh, you know, talking about technology, how a lot has changed since you went in. I mean, I think as you learn this technology and as you learn how to maneuver your way in a society today, uh, you're going to find a lot of opportunities. So I wish you the best, and I, I thank you for coming on the show and sharing your story. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Can I can I say uh, a couple quick things? Sure. Yeah, go for it. All right. Um, anyone out there who is in prison or have loved ones in prison, please support your loved ones in prison, and uh, don't just send them religious material. Send them information about that they can actively use practical information to change their lives. I would recommend some good self-help books that focus on the way you think and that focus on self-discipline because, uh, you know, I strongly believe that if you change the way you think, you change your entire life. Because if you change the way you think, you change the way you speak and you change the way you behave. And once the way you think, speak and behave changes, your social circles automatically change because these people don't really want to deal with you anymore. You don't really want to deal with them anymore because you think, speak and behave differently. So the, the the key to change for me is to help people change the way that they think. And you can do this by helping them change their perspective. If you just help a person change the way they look at the same situation, if they look at the same situation from a different perspective, they automatically change the way they think, feel, and behave about it. And uh, please support your people and look into uh, uh, Malik King on uh, Facebook and into um, uh, different articles with the uh, Can Do Foundation and Miss Amy. I mean, Miss Amy with the Can Do Foundation and Malik King with the Epic Foundation. They're doing great work to help people who are incarcerated. Please assist them in any way that you can and uh, ask them any questions that you can. They want to help, even if you think nothing's going to happen right now under the Trump sessions regime. And uh, But, you know, you have to gear up for the battle. And the last thing I would say is uh, if you have people incarcerated, help them to look into entrepreneurship because it's not always that easy to get uh, a pretty decent paying job with the uh, felony mark on you. And you get real frustrated, especially the person who's there for drugs because they're used to being their own boss and people kind of treat you a certain way when you work for them. And this may deter them and make them go back to the street. So help them learn about business and finance. You, you know, money is extremely important in America. Capital is king. It's, you know, I, I, and this may be controversial, but I always say that the American religion is capitalism, not Christianity. You know, the God here is the almighty dollar. It's Benjamin Franklin, you know, so help people learn how to make a different living for themselves and they won't go back into crime because no one really, really wants to be there. And uh, thank you very much for this opportunity and, if you're out there looking to uh, online trading, whether it be options trading, currency trading, there's something great that you can do from your uh, smartphone, or your laptop or tablet. 
from the comfort of your own home after work or full time when you really get it down is a good way to make a good living. So uh, thank you very much, man. Well, that's that's and great peace, advice, and, and I will link to all those in the show notes page. Thank you so much for coming on. All right, man. Thank you. Have a have a blessed life. Hey guys, hope you enjoyed part two of today's interview with Jamel Nettles. What an incredible story. What an incredible person uh, for him to persevere through everything he's been through, being shot five times, uh, spending 11 years in prison, getting clemency from Barack Obama, and now he's out of prison, turning his life around. Such a motivated guy, such an entrepreneurial guy. I just know that he's going to find success. One thing I wanted to talk about, we had our Lions Guard call. That's our $25 member uh, Lions Pride people, they, we get a, a monthly phone call. And a member of, of that group is Justin Zelensky. And I, I, I asked the whole group what they thought about Felony Friday, what they wanted me to do going forward, if they had a favorite format, either being these type of interviews or sort of discussions where I bring someone on to, to talk about felonies trending in the news, to play is this a crime, should anyone do time? And Justin gave some feedback that these stories are really important because it gives people like Jamel Nettles, it gives them an opportunity to share their story, to share their experiences, what they've learned from what they've experienced, how it changed them, and how it made them who they are today. There's no other podcast out there doing this, sharing these stories. And I'm not saying that to toot my own horn, because honestly, I think it's really telling to have Jamel's story Right after we interviewed, right after I interviewed Johan Hari, the author of Chasing the Scream, Johan talked about throughout the interview that addiction is not a crime, that addiction is not caused by the drug, addiction is caused by the circumstances. And it was interesting to hear Jamel talk about not addiction, he didn't have a drug problem, but drug dealing being an addiction that was driven by the circumstances. So see how this is all just a cycle that the people that Jamel is selling to through the black market drug drug trade are feeding an addiction that is fueled by the poverty, by the impoverished situation that they're in, and the drug dealer situation. People think of drug dealers as people taking advantage of people who have a problem, but really all they're doing is they're entrepreneurial people who this is all they know. This is the only opportunity that they've seen and someone like Jamel Nettles took advantage of that and became addicted to it. And the only thing that got him out of it, the only thing that changed him, was when he got arrested. Um, he got shot five times, obviously, and that story is freaking incredible. I don't know anyone in the world that can get shot five times and be out of the hospital in a matter of days. Just that's an incredible, incredible story there. It's really a uh, an amazing thing. But I think it's important to point out the similarities between what Johan Hari talked about and what Jamel talked about and how the policies, our politicians, our senators, our representatives, the president of the United States, the attorney general, nobody, nobody is addressing the root cause of the problem, which is people are out there suffering. People don't have opportunities to succeed in the legal market. If we legalize drugs, that that'll be a great thing. That's going to make it safer for for people who are addicted to drugs to get help. It's going to bring people like Jamel um, out of maybe in the illegal trade where 
That's the only opportunity they see. So they're willing to take on more risk and it might open up their eyes to other situations. So I think that's really important. And I I wanted to stress that point. Guys, I I just want to ask you a really, really big favor. If you haven't thought about joining the Lions of Liberty Pride and you're a longtime listener, you enjoy this show, you enjoy what we're doing, I want to encourage you to really consider joining the Pride. It would be great to have you at the $25 level to talk to you on a monthly call every you know, every single month and you get the, the freebies, the t-shirt, the koozie, you get access to the private Facebook group and all the exclusive content that we publish here. This interview being a piece of exclusive content, I did release this interview in its entirety last week to the Pride members. So they heard all of this last week. But if you can't do 25, I understand that is a big commitment. $10 doesn't get you the uh, monthly conference call, gets you some freebies get you in the Facebook group, get you the exclusive content, get you a discount in the store, like the $25 level. If you can't do that, $5, guys, that's totally fine. You get all the exclusive content. You don't get the freebies. You do get it in the Facebook group as well. And $5 a month is not a lot. It is a commitment, though, and I understand that. And it is a commitment to do that, to spend that $5 every month. Um, that money will go to good use. I promise you that. We've talked about before. We upgrade all of our mics. We we bought a mixer so we can do some some live stuff. We're going to continue to do that. And the more and more money that we bring in, we're going to pour it all back into the show to grow in the show, getting a wider audience, and blowing this thing the hell up. So guys, jump on board. Jump on for the ride. You can join the pride by going to lionsofliberty.com slash support. Join the Lions of Liberty Forum. Do that. Go on Facebook, punch Lions of Liberty Forum in the search bar at the top and join the forum. And if you if you guys haven't used the Donor C app, we talk about Donor C all the time here. Uh, we were pushing very strongly for, for people to get involved and helping fund the, the Cajun Navy, people that went down and rescued people during Harvey. Uh, there, there's other things on Donor C that Donor C is doing, other projects that Donor C uh, has up to to fund the recovery in Houston. One of those projects is helping a longtime supporter of us here at Lines of Liberty, Daniel Lee. Uh, his family, his own home, has really taken on some heavy damage, and I, re- I really want to encourage the uh, listeners here at Lions of Liberty to go check out Daniel's project. I will link to it on the show notes page, as well as the other donor C projects that uh, that are helping the city of Houston. So be sure to check those out, guys. Consider consider donating and helping out a, uh, a great cause. That's all I got for the show today. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed today's interview. If you liked it, if you have ideas for other interviews, please shoot me an email, felonyfriday at lionsofliberty.com. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.